All right, it's Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. A couple weeks ago, I was in Las Vegas with our friends from Google for CES, this consumer electronics show, and recorded a podcast with Christina Tosi of Momofuku Milk Bar fame. Tosi uh, recently was described as, and I know she's going to hate me for saying this, as the quote-unquote Martha Stewart for millennials. But it's true. She's got now, I want to say, 12 milk bars across the country. Uh, she just received a very sizable investment. Uh, from RSE Ventures, which is also heavily invested in the Momofuku empire. She's got a couple of cookbooks. She did a couple of seasons of MasterChef. Uh, she's everywhere, and she's super smart. Did you know that she was an applied mathematics major in college? I don't even know what that means, but I know that means you're smart. And then she got into working in some of the best restaurants in New York and finally launched her own business. So we talk about all that, and let's do this. Here's Christina and me. Tosi, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I have not had breakfast. What? I know that's crazy. It's like noon in Vegas, which makes it like 3 p.m. on the East Coast. I've ha- only had coffee, but I'm a funny traveler. I got in late last night, and I made, I'm made. i in the process of making overnight oats with coconut water and a packet of oatmeal that I brought. Because when I travel, it's just, I'm, I'm, my body is like so off rhythm. I, don't, I like not having a routine because it keeps me on my toes, but then it also means that I'm going to go deep into lunch and dinner when I, those times come. I, I, I just assume you would have like traveled with those little like mini boxes of Count Chocula <laughs> yeah, or Frankenberry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just like eat them. Eat Pour them, the milk yeah. right into the bag. <laughs> As I'm checking my emails in the morning in bed in Las Vegas. Um, I'm not a big breakfast person, which is hilarious because I take a lot of inspiration from breakfast. I imagine my mom kept me on like a really healthy breakfast eating schedule as a kid. But as a grown-up, I just I I know I shouldn't, but I just can't be bothered by breakfast most so she, days. It's like one of your one of your hit singles is your cereal milk, <laughs> yes, ice cream and stuff. Is that a is that a sort of a recollection from when you were a kid at breakfast, or were you the type who would come home after school and reach for like the sugar cereal? And were, were you allowed to have sugar cereal in your house? So I have a very funny relationship with cereal which all relates back to like why cereal milk, why it's meaningful to me. I was a super picky eater as a kid, and uh, I, I love dessert, which is probably no huge surprise, but I was very stubborn, so I would constantly like convince my mom that eating healthy food was a negotiation. And she at least got to the bottom of cereal, no pun intended, where uh, she would basically just bribe me with cereal and say, you, you're coming to the grocery store with me, you're gonna like help be my mule at the grocery store, you can choose whatever box of cereal you want on, in the cereal aisle, but the only agreement was that she could pour as much milk over the cereal mm. as she wanted, and I had to drink the cereal at the milk at the bottom of the bowl. That was our like agreement, like like. But wait, so it wasn't even like okay, you can have cocoa puffs if you eat broccoli at dinner. There was it. She didn't even bother with the broccoli. Nope. Wow. I mean, I would do crazy things. I would like take the peas that I was supposed to eat. And when she wasn't paying attention, I would like sneak a three under my plate and smush them to make <laughs> them disappear. As one and does. And then again, more and more and more. Because I, also one of my chores was to do the dishes. So she never actually caught Ooh. up with it. Um, but yeah, so cereal for me happened for breakfast. But it also happened uh, like as my afternoon snack. I remember as a kid, like we didn't, we never had sugar cereal in the house. You know, my mom, she would buy kicks, yeah. those cereals that were they, they were they they were like promoted as sugar cereal, but they weren't. They were no, shaped really. like them, and they had yes. the rabbit or whatever. Yes. And as a kid, you're like, wait a minute, mom, these aren't sugar. I know what you're trying to do, but then at some point, when my sister and older sister and brother went to college, 
at some point, Maxine Rappaport just threw in the towel. She's like, okay, whatever. You want Captain Crunch? You want Doritos? You want a giant 64 ounce of, of, of Mountain Dew? Fine. Yeah, and I'm all for like health and well-being, but I'm also like, I was so raised eating. I went through, I probably still live uh, amongst the diet of like a 12 or 13-year-old, but it's fine. Like you just listen to your body. You're, you'll be fine. Kids aren't going to die if they eat sugar. They're going to die if they fall in love, deeply in love with sugared cereal. Maybe they'll one day become a great pastry chef that, that draws from that inspiration to uh, yeah. make something great for the All world. All right, so let's, let's talk about drawing from that inspiration because it's, it's interesting to me where you are now and how many people in this industry work their tails off yeah. and are behind the line making $14 an hour. Yeah. Oh my God, $14 an hour is like a lot of money. I know. <laughs> That's what you're making in yeah. the kitchen. Do not leave that job. <laughs> and yet, it's, it, you did not, it strikes me that you didn't take the typical career path to get where you are today. Yeah. Uh, you kind of, I don't know if you sort of zigzagged or cuberted or leapfrogged, but you weren't the person who worked for five years at Jean Georges and mm. then worked at Danielle and yeah. as a pastry chef. I mean, I, I, I very much. Uh, believe in like marching to the beat of my own drum I was uh, of the many life lessons that my mom instilled in me she was like just be yourself just be yourself be curious be hardworking be committed but just be yourself and so when I moved to New York City to go to culinary school because I knew I wanted to bake for a living and what year was this oh uh, 2002 I graduated from college in 2002 and I moved to New York I knew I wanted to go to culinary school because I knew I had learned a lot in being a home baker, but I wanted, I knew enough about myself to know that a formal education was something I was like raised to be super studious and, and driven by that like academia. So I knew that that was important to me, though everyone has their own opinion on culinary school. That was right for me. And while I was going to culinary school, I was like, well, I'm in New York City. I have no money. And uh, I'm in the most exciting city in the world. And one of the reasons I decided to go to culinary school in New York City was so that I could get a job in a restaurant immediately because I felt like I was behind. I was behind. I had spent three years going to college and I was like, all right, now I'm behind and I'm trying to be like the best of the best. And so I actually started working at Wait, 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 wait. Three years going to college? Did yeah, you graduate? No, it's bad. Yeah, I did. <laughs> you did? I'm a, yeah. I was, you graduated I'm in three years? An, oh, yeah. And, and if, like, I think, and you were a mathematics major? Yeah. <laughs> Applied <laughs> mathematics and the Italian language. They're the things that I love. That like is very much, again, like a march, marching to the beat of my own drum. I just got like sick of college life. I was like, I'm not a sorority person. I totally get why it exists and it's super fun. It's just not who I am. And I was just like, I got to get out of here and figure out what I want to do with my life. So I pushed, I pushed through, moved to New York and, um, I knew I wanted to go to culinary school, but I also knew that getting as much hands-on experience was going to be vital. And so I started working at Boulay when I was, uh, I would go to culinary school by day and work at Boulay by night. Right, so Boulay, my routine. For, for the listeners who don't, David Boulay was sort of, he was like the chef of the 90s. Yeah. And in the early 2000s, he had his little empire down in, in Tribeca, Tribeca of like a couple of restaurants and cooking yeah. studio and such, whatnot. What, did you just walk in there and say, hey, can I work for you? What was that like? Well, one, how you got your information on, like, the best restaurants is, like, the only thing I had was Zagat. 
Yeah. Like, I was coming from Virginia. So like I, there was no New York times food section. Cause the only way to get that was on a Wednesday to go to your newsstand. It wasn't distributed the way that it is now that information. So I got my hands on a Zagat book and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out what the nicest restaurants to work with the highest scored restaurants. Yeah. Are. So you're either going to Boulay, Union Square Cafe or Gramercy Tavern. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it because none of the other big restaurants existed. And, uh, Boulay just happened to be an easier walk from where I was living. I was living on Elizabeth and Grand, and I went to the French Culinary Institute, which is on Broadway and Grand, and Tribeca was just, I didn't have money to go take the subway. I definitely didn't have money for a cab, so I was like, that would be like my most ideal place to work for a bunch of different reasons, and it was a four-star dining establishment, and yeah, I just walked in, and the pastry chef there uh, was, at the time, was Alex Gruner, and he's this amazing, incredibly talented, hardworking, a pastry chef from Austria. And the way those like big high-end restaurants worked at the time was they're all they were all super duper understaffed. One, when you're pursuing that caliber of food, it doesn't matter how many people you have on staff, it's still never going to be enough people. Um and he just kind of like looked at me and he was like, "Okay, you want to come Okay, you want to when do you want to work?" And I was like, "I guess I can start right now." And he was like, okay, fine. Were you Going, working for money or was it like an internship? Or no, what was that agreement? it was 100% it was for free. I was terrified. He just said you, you're going to work here for free. Yeah, and that was important for me because I knew that I had so much to learn that getting paid would actually probably have made me, at, at first getting paid would have made me into like a crazy worry wart because like you work in a kitchen you're gonna make yeah. a recipe you're gonna mess up a recipe when you make it and it goes in the trash you're gonna get in trouble and you're gonna do like 25 bonehead things before you actually show any sign of brilliance and the way that they look at you when you walk into a restaurant like that is with those eyes of like uh like they're 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 sizing you up they're like trying to weigh what the value of free labor will be versus how many mistakes you will make <laughs> and how much you will actually your presence will cost them as well and no one is really advocating for you you just have to have a really strong sense of self to be like all right cool i just am gonna get in there and and so i interned or staged at boulet for the entirety of culinary school and then the day I graduated they started paying me I got a full-time <laughs> so, job so what do you what do you tell if kids now and I say kids someone in their early 20s and I'm, I'm sure you get this a lot they want to get into restaurants they want to be the next Christina Tosi what do you tell them <laughs> in terms of how to break well, in one I will say don't ever try and be like the next Christina Tosi you should just because you're like I you. got this this is my corner no <laughs> no more just like you should be you I mean one of the reasons this part of my path is pretty is pretty straightforward but one of the reasons that I chose a bunch of other directions was because, was because I didn't know what I wanted to be I just knew I was super excited to be in the food world so I got this restaurant job but then all of a sudden I'd get curious about like oh maybe I want to be a food writer. I don't actually know yeah. what that means. I'm going to go get a job there. Maybe I want to be a food stylist. Maybe I want to be a caterer. Maybe I want to work in the dining room. So I was like, great, I'm going to go work for Thomas Keller per se and work in the dining room because I just wanted to learn as much as possible before and take and take advantage of opportunities that existed um, while I was young and hungry before I forced myself into a niche or a path. I think that... 
another way that I was raised was like, don't ever like, don't be Mrs. Got Rocks was like my family slang of it. But it's like, don't Wait, try what? and be like Got Rocks <laughs> is is like the woman that's like, you know, just like covered in jewels and jewelry that you like lust after or that you wish that you were that you try to be just in the spirit of like, don't try and have what someone else has. Figure out what you want. Figure out what yeah. makes you happy. Figure out what you are. Um, and so that's the advice that I'd give to anyone. Don't try and be the next anyone else. Just be yourself. But in that pursuit, like try a bunch of things on for size. It's Don't make it a, a, a straight and narrow road. It should be like a curvy, beautiful like highway. Well, also, and that's the fun part. I mean, I talked to a lot, get of, on and get off. a lot of young writer editors and who want to work at Bon Appetit or somewhere. And it's like this notion at age 23 that you're supposed to know what you want. Is also yeah. it's like you you should go try this go try that see what you're not good at is really yeah. important yes it's important to admit to yourself like, you know what I'm actually I don't love to do this like, this is what I want to yes. do and it takes a while to find that what about um and that also shows so much drive because I think it's like the dichotomy of that with the pressure to be driven I'm super driven I've always been super driven but but you I don't wasn't... come but you don't come off that way. People ever tell That's you that? So nice. But you're always so, like, oh, I, Christina, I know she's I fun can and be nice. Very intense. I know I can be very intense. Where is where is the intense side in you? Or when does that I, surface? When I put my mind, like when I decide on something, when I put my mind to something, I'm relentless. If do I your, like, decide to make cereal milk, I'm relentless in my pursuit of it, and I will drive my entire team crazy. I was about to say, does your team receive the brunt of that? totally and we're all better for it and I joke about it because being like self-aware is incredibly important but I think that yeah the 23 year old that's like I should know what I am what I want to do and then just drive for that I think the the misconception is that you should know what you want to do that you understand the world that you understand yourself like I'm 36 I <laughs> just turned 36 Ish. I'm still figuring myself out but that doesn't take away from like my drive and my determination and my passion but the exploration element of being like a 23-year-old is like, be driven, but be driven to explore. Know what you're interested in, but don't feel pressured to know exactly what you want. Also, the food, the world changes so much between when you're 23 and when you are actually have like made your way up whatever food chain. Yeah. I was reading an article the other day of like, your son is 10 years old. He will probably not get the education to be to take on the profession that he ends up taking on because that is how quickly the world is changing so I can, and we t- I, can, I, can I can tell him not to do his homework then it's okay <laughs> i mean i don't know if you ask greta tozzi she would be like a hundred percent you need to do your homework what about the places you worked at i mean it's also like who you surround yourself with obviously dictates your experience and you, sure. and you went from boulet which was very much of a certain generation. <laughs> yes. And maybe you can talk about that very French-minded restaurant to then WD-50 and Momofuku, who seemed to be of this newer generation yeah. and newer kitchen mindset. And what was, what was that like? Well, I always chose my... I always chose where I was working or where I w- worked next based after Boulet, based on what I wanted to get from it and what was happening there. So... I went after Boulet, I ended up going and working in the dining room at Per Se because I wanted that experience and I wanted the Boulet was very, very, very old school, traditional French cuisine and the mindset and the mentality of the kitchen existed as such. Very gritty, very rough, very, you really have to prove yourself, um, very traditional to Per Se, which was kind of like the new age Thomas Keller dining. And I wanted that, I wanted that experience that was a very serious 
experience that was different than Boulay. But still very regimented and precise. Very regimented. I would like. Did you like that? I would get in. I did the math major and you like that. (laughs) So much of the learning, I learned so much. I got screamed at all the time. For for what? Screamed at for what? I would get in trouble for smiling. I would also get in trouble because. Wait, what do you mean you get in trouble for smiling? The the whole purpose of your role uh, of certain roles in the dining room because there's so many people that are in charge of this one table of two is to always know what you want. If you're a dining with your wife, what you two need and want before you even realize you know it. That's the caliber of dining. But that also means that there's four people that have just eyes on you and your wife as you're dining. Wow, that's pretty pretty creepy. You have to almost be invisible as a server. And I'm just so excited to be there. I'm smiling. And that uh, your, your presence is not meant to be necessarily felt to that extent. But I'd also would get in trouble because... Like for open-handed service, you're never supposed to. If I'm putting wait 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 what, wait what what is open-handed service? Open-handed service is <laughs> as opposed to backhanded. Like, so when you dine at a restaurant, um, your server or whoever from the um, dining room staff, when they come and are and are helping set you up for your next course or serving you or pouring you water, should always be interacting with you as though they're giving you like an open-armed hug. So if they're approaching you from the right, they're always serving. They're always working with the right hand. So from behind you, they're always okay. you're always like getting a little bit of an open-armed hug as opposed to like seeing their elbow pour you water and it's called open-handed service because your hands are always open when you're when you are setting your guests up all of these things happen when you're actually serving a guest where they're talking or they're holding hands and there are all of these situational things that you have to like work around in the moment and if you read it wrong maybe you like accidentally knock into the guest or you use closed hand instead of open handed because of this situation or the plate's incredibly hot and you're like if i don't drop this plate off i'm gonna drop it on the ground what do you do you ever have those moments where you're like so you have to be almost armchair psychiatrist are you like oh that couple's fighting right now i shouldn't yeah. go over there yeah. or are they in a good mood should i you learn so much i think i only ever took psychology 101 at college but you learn so much about like human interaction in space and how to read those nonverbal cues. So I learned so much. It was one of my best decisions um, professionally to say, I'm going to get out of the kitchen because I want to learn. I want to challenge myself to learn this other end of it. And I want to learn it from the best. But from there, I was like, all right, guess what? I really miss the kitchen and I miss having fun. And I knew enough about myself in being out of the kitchen at per se to know that I wanted to be in the kitchen. But so you, it wasn't like this long view plan, like, all right, I'm going to work in a kitchen, then work for a year in the front mm-hmm. of the house and then go back. Mm-hmm. You were just kind of figuring out as you went. No, I just, I, I, after, after being at Boulay, I was like, all right, I have learned, I, I went to boot camp for like a year and a half. Great. I, I got my chops. I got all these things. I can go and work in another restaurant. Is that what I want to do? And the answer was yes, but, I wanted a different kind of experience. So I worked for the dining room at per se. But then after that, I was like, oh my gosh, I really miss the kitchen. So that at least helps me solve for one question. The kitchen is actually where you belong. Also figuring out what you don't want to do. Yeah. And then from there, I was like, I want a place that's smaller. Like I've now worked in two fine dining, four star restaurants that are huge. And I want to be able to have more of an impact. I want something smaller. I want something that's more creative. And I want, I had a sense a little bit by then to go to know 
what like what my tendencies and what I thought my personality through food was because just because you say you want to be a chef you have no sense of what your style is and what your voice and your language is you have to go and work for people to understand as much what it is as what it isn't and I uh so I had left per se and I was trying to decide I knew I wanted to work in a pastry kitchen and I had this conversation with myself where I was like, okay, well, which, where do you want to go and work? And my, I had two paths. One of the paths was to go and work at Kraft. Karen Damasco was the pastry chef at Kraft, and she had just and come under. And that was Tom under, Clefio's restaurant after Gramercy Tavern. Exactly. And she had just come under the tutelage of Claudia Fleming, who was the pastry chef at Gramercy Tavern. And that was like super duper, like warm, clever Americana desserts. I was remember they're like, oh, wow, there's rosemary in this. She, okay, like you know? that end of oh, it, boy, okay. I knew that this like Americana spirit and this like warm nostalgia through desserts was something that really appealed to me. But what you ended up doing, what you're doing with Milk Bar now, what's fascinating about that is like you could see those those strands of that in there, but what you're doing now didn't exist then, which is so no. interesting. Like you didn't know where you would be in 10 I years because no, like no. it didn't exist yet. It didn't, and you don't even know what's in you until you start to like give yourself the grace of time through these different experiences. So I was like, all right, I can either go and work at Kraft or and by can it's more like would like to yeah <laughs> would like to pursue yeah. that concept or i want to go and work for wiley dufresne at wd50 and, and I sam met- mason was the pastry chef at the time couldn't be like kind of more polar opposite restaurants yeah. right like they were all about this like manipulation of these clever concepts and food through what some people call molecular molecular gastronomy though if you ask either one of them they would like shudder at the thought but i imagine like they they sort of instilled in you this notion that you can do whatever the f you want yeah like you can manipulate if you have the idea and you do the research you can find a way and that was like a very nerdy approach to food which 100 percent played into like the mathematician in but you essentially because you didn't really go in that modernist cuisine Root, mm-hmm. but you went in a way that was like, whoa, this is kind of crazy. I haven't had this before. Yeah, that's 100% it. And I decided, I said, well, what would be the bigger challenge? And at the time, I thought putting myself more out of my comfort zone was working at WD-50. And so I did the same thing I did at Boulay. I just showed up one day and I went, you know, like after lunch, but before dinner service and said, I would like to work for you for free. I've worked it. Uh, these restaurants and I would like to work for you for free. But how do you make a living though? What do you, so then where are you working um, when you're not working I would working do for side jobs. Uh-huh. I would work, I was an editorial assistant at Savor. I was an assistant food stylist. I helped a friend cater. So this point is like um, by any means necessary. I'm going to, I'm going to get in there. I'm going to get the experience. And also like I, I, by then I was living slim. It's just mm. me. So I didn't have a family. I wasn't responsible to anyone or anything, but you don't need that much money to stay alive in New York City if you're smart and clever about it. Like, yeah. I lived in a tiny apartment. I had a roommate. I ate at work. I ate at, you know what I mean? Well, what am I going to do with, like, the small money that they would give me? I'd probably eat out. I'm just going to eat yeah. at family meal. And I figured it out. And I had no days off, so it was perfect. I didn't need, or I'd go to the public library and, like, rent movies for free. That was, like, my, you can live. Yeah, no, you got to be you got to be resourceful. But you, so you eventually, you, you, you kind of picked up this sort of, ingenuity gene at wd-50 you then migrated to momofuku though you didn't start as a pastry chef you were no you were doing like explain what you're doing okay so well the better way to describe it is so i so i started working at wd-50 for free then eventually i got 
eventually I became the, a pastry cook. There was only two spots. So you basically just had to work there for free and wait in line in hopes that one of these spots would open up. Isn't that up. kind of screwed up? Isn't that, isn't that one of the issues with the restaurant industry right now? It's like, it's, why why are people working for you? Why are people working for $11 an hour? Yeah. And obviously the tipping thing, like and waiters are going home with 400 bucks in yeah. their pocket. Yeah. I mean, that part of it, I made... The, the discrepancy in pay from, I mean, working at Boulay to working at Per Se, it was like I couldn't, I couldn't quite wrap my head around what I would take home every week from working at Per Se because I worked just as hard there as I did in the restaurant. Or sorry, in the back of house, in the kitchen. And yeah, that discrepancy is crazy. Um, but it, for me, it's a labor of love. Don't do anything unless you love it so much that uh, that you are going to love to do it when no one's watching and you're going to love to do it when it doesn't pay and that you're going to love to do it when everyone else has gone to bed and you're still like churning it out. If you don't love it that much and you want to be the next whatever, but don't be the next whatever, don't do it if you don't love it that much because it, it, your pursuit, will it will never be enough passion to drive you to the success that you want. That's my opinion. So I worked in this, so I worked at WD-50. I, wor- I finally got a job as a pastry cook, which was great. I was getting paid, so I didn't have to do these other odd jobs in between. And I was there for a year and a half and I, in my free time, because I didn't have these odd jobs on my days off, I would just ask Wiley, what can I do to help? Like, I'm on a trajectory of learning, so how much more can I learn? You won't let me work on day six and day seven as a pastry cook, so what else can I be doing? Like, give me work. It's kind of like back to school where you're like, hey, At this point, did you realize, did you think, like, I'm going to be hungrier and harder working -er than everyone else at this restaurant? Or was it just like, oh, I'm just going to do my thing? I mean, I think that's always been my mindset. In, from like as a kid growing up, I mean, at Boulay, like how do you deal with all of the things that happen when you're a female working in a kitchen? You're just like, you want to know what? I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about being the biggest and best and better than anyone else. And I'm going to care for you and no one cares for you. And I'm going to help you even though you might be a big meanie. And I'm going to change the way I'm, my job is to change the way you think about me and the way you change the way you think about a woman in this role did you ever think did you ever think you weren't getting a fair shake that well, why is this guy having no, an easier path than I am or I, I just what I don't think that that mindset is productive yeah I just it's never been a mindset that I adopt probably because my parents were like absolutely not that's not how you look at the world and I'm so grateful for it because it is a mindset that many people do adopt I just don't think it's productive because then you end up fixating on someone else other than yourself. you're worrying about some yeah, yeah you're worrying about something that you can't control so just do better Um, so yeah, I was a little bit, it was a little bit, I was at the, I was like at the top of pastry cookdom. So it wasn't like I was sucking up. It was more like, I'm curious. I want more. I need more. I have more in my tank at the end of a week. So give me something. So he'd give me like old recipe books to transcribe in like, you know, into a word doc. And one day he was like, all right, I have something you can help me with. I need to figure out how to write a HACCP plan, which is a hazard analysis plan for sous vide cooking, which is a style of cooking, which is, I think, a, a lot more well-known now than it was then, which is basically cooking something in, in a vacuum, like anaerobic environment. The health department, it was this French technique that had made it to the States, and there are potential health risks with it if you really don't know 
how to properly handle food and the technique. But the health department was freaking out because they were like, all right, there's this new food technique that could potentially kill hundreds of thousands of stuff people. Because stuff potentially gets warm but not hot enough for cooked through. Yeah. And it's cooked and in, in a water an, bath. Exactly. And in an anaerobic environment, in a completely oxygen-free environment, bacteria has the ability to grow exponentially quicker than in in uh, than in aerobic environment so this this is but this is like a big job because if you screw this up then yeah that has a I don't know potential about, serious I don't know ramifications about food yeah i know about food science as it relates to how to manipulate food as a pastry cook i don't know anything about food science so you as studied it comes up to like writing something yeah. down yeah it was like mission impossible and um so I started forging this relationship with the health department. I started forging this relationship with these crazy French scientists and uh, just kind of like pushed and pushed and asked questions and poked and figured it out and wrote these hazard analysis plans for him, helped the New York City Health Department write their standards for this HACCP plan because they were still figuring it out. They needed just as much yeah, help. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, and... I ended up meeting Dave Chang because he was friends with Wiley. The food community is infamously really small. And Wiley was like, hey, I need you to go and, like, would you be willing to go and help a friend up in the East Village who, like, needs the same help that you just helped? But why did, why, why, wasn't Wiley like, oh, if I let her go work with Chang, I'm not going to see her again? You know, I think that the struggle when you are a small, single business owner is that when you have great talent that comes through your door, Unless you're going to build your empire around them, there's only so many places. There's no place for you to go. go. Yeah. And Dave and I, I mean, like fast forward, this is jumping a little bit ahead, but Dave and I talk about that all the time. Dave worked at Kraft for Tom Colicchio. And it is when you have so much experience under your belt and you've worked with great talent alongside you on the line as cooks, you watch people, people leave, people leave restaurants and part of our mentality when we were thinking through it at Momofuku was like, what if, what if Momofuku was like the restaurant empire that, that grew as their talent grew that, that who's, who's not singular mission, but who's like submission is like to create an environment where you don't have to look for a job again and you don't have to leave because opportunities will be created around you. That was something that Wiley at the time didn't have the ability yeah. to do. And it's heartbreaking and heart-wrenching, but it happens. People leave you because they either need different experience because they're not done on their roadmap, yeah, yeah, or because the opportunity you're creating for them just isn't one that suits them. Which is ended what, what ended up happening at Momofuku and that as, as that restaurant expanded to another restaurant, another restaurant, mm -hmm. and then Milk Bar was born. You had been doing desserts some desserts for the restaurant. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you had a standalone space next to Sambar. Yep. And so what was going on in your head then? You're like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to like build an empire or like I have this cool little shop. We'll see what happens. Oh, it happened. So I was so think I was so busy thinking about other things in a beautiful way. Uh, I will self-sabotage as much as anyone else, but in a beautiful, way, I was so busy worried about the more simple things in life that I was not thinking about the bigger questions 
And so I kind of tricked myself into where I am today, which I think is actually all for the good. I started, I went to work for Dave. I was helping him more in like operations space, which was great, helping him like get a better backbone and structure to Momofuku so he could continue to grow that. I started making desserts for the restaurants, like you mentioned. And I think he saw in me the same like, like S-H-I-T, I'm going to lose this person and he saw that like I do so much better when I'm my own boss and um, that I had so much more to give and that it would be more appropriate to just like let me bury myself in, <laughs> in myself than to just have me perform a single task or two or three at Momofuku. And so he was like, I think you should just open your own bakery. Like you talk about it. It's something you want to do. And he kind of like kicked me out of the nest before I saw that I needed to be kicked out. And I think that like for him, that uh, how he, he's like an amazing visionary and has an ability to see many things. He is so, he could be like a psychologist or a psychoanalyst. That's how like, he's very studied in that like unspoken space of, people and behavior and human action reaction he kind of like pushed me out not not in a in a completely supportive way was like you're gonna like you're gonna start your own bakery off of like the momofuku name and we'll like talk about like how much seed money do you need but like you need you need to do this so what so what hit singles do you have at that point you have you had the compost cookie Uh, so we opened the doors november 15th 2008 that's my birthday stop yes Scorpio. Yes. I so, didn't get the invite, but that's cool. No all right. So, way. all right. So, so yeah. So, so what were you selling at that opening point? Opening day. And he saw the menu like a few days before and he was like, he just, I remember he was, he was like, actually, I want to see the menu before you open it. I <laughs> him and I remember him kind of like making these really like concerned, confused faces. And then also he would just start laughing and be like, okay, toes, like whatever you want. Uh, like d- just go for it. But crack pie, cereal milk, soft serve, cereal milk, the drinking milk. Um, all of our layer cakes that were that are unfrosted to this day on their sides, um, the compost cookie, the cornflake chocolate chip marshmallow cookie, the corn cookie, the blueberry and cream cookie. The so that's like your pie. that's like that's like your first album that has like eleven hit singles on it. Right, like what? Yeah, what that's crazy. What? But I was so busy uh, running my first kitchen and trying to figure out how to hire like a team of people that worked behind the counter worrying about like, are we ordering enough milk? What's our par on regular sugar? What's our par on light brown sugar? Do we have enough Cambros to store everything? I was so worried about the most basic operational things that I could not, that I didn't see what was coming in a really beautiful way. I did like, was you so were nervous. so concerned with the day to day. Do you I think, also, do you think Chang had more of a vision for your future than you did at that point? Uh, I think he knew he believed in me. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think he knew he believed in me and that was kind of all there was to it. We have a joke where if like the right person for the job is the person that like the day before opening is so stressed out or so worried that they like puke in the bathroom. (laughs) And I had like my rite of passage where I was like strung out on the floor of a bathroom at milk bar, like puking and being like, no, 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 bring me the prep list. Bring me the prep list. I'll be out in 10 minutes. Um, it was like, it was just like this beautiful hodgepodge of like not knowing what was coming, but also somehow knowing what was coming, um, but not having enough time to worry about it. I like, I didn't have enough time to second guess myself in a beautiful way. That's my greatest, I'd say my greatest recommendation I could give to anyone that's opening a spot 
obviously you got to you got to do you you got to be authentic you got to be bringing something to the table don't be a copycat like be figure out who you are and make sure that there's a need for it in the world um but beyond that just bury yourself in it bury yourself in it so deep as you go to open that you don't second guess yourself because second guessing yourself at the very beginning it's just not productive you're going to get a much you're going to capture lightning in a bottle much more productively if you're not worried about like well what if this what if people are offended by that what if people don't get cereal milk like what if crack pie is too strange for people? What if the thought of like calling something a compost cookie is like terrifying? Yeah, I had no. It didn't even occur to me to worry about those things. Um, but also, you know, I realize I'm like, grateful for it. <laughs> I, I mean, I always think about it somewhat at Bon Appetit and what we do creatively, whatever. Um, it's also like if you're not pissing some people off, you're probably not doing your job. Like you don't want everyone 100%. to like what you do. It's we like some people mantra, should hate what you totally. do. Totally. Our mantra is like people will not be willing to die for you if there aren't people that are just so abhorred and aghast and, and full of hate with what <laughs> you do. You can't. You have to You have to live on both. To live on one end of the spectrum, you have to also acknowledge the other end of the spectrum exists because otherwise you're just everything to everyone and then there's no beloved nature to that. People are just like, yeah, it's okay. It's yeah, good. It's, it's not fine. so good. I love yeah, it. It's, it's fine. not so bad. I hate it. So now, all right, so you, so you now have a, a, a milk bar headquarters in, in Brooklyn yeah. where you do wholesale. You make a ton of food. You've got how many locations of 12, smaller shops? We have 12 shops and we have three kitchens now. The biggest one is in Brooklyn. Brooklyn still, but we have one in Washington, D.C., um, and one in Las Vegas. And then in terms of your business, is it more wholesale than retail now, or like what's that sort of we, schematic? You know, I, I, I dabbled in wholesale when I first moved to the kitchen to Williamsburg because we had this huge kitchen, and we had huge production capacities, but we only had like two stores. And I realized that what was – I think most productive and mo- more most true to us was if we sell our cereal milk soft serve and our cookies, th- that's how you get milk bar best and how you get it most. I think a wholesale bakery model operationally, you have to sell a lot of cookies to pay the rent already, but a wholesale bakery model is you're not really, there's a huge loss of control when you go wholesale. One, because you're working to sell. You're just a. You're you're almost the someone's middleman, and uh, I wanted I wanted the spirit of Milk Bar to be captured in stores where we could have control and voice, and there could be quirk, and there could be like these comfortably human elements. So most of our business is is at the storefront level, though we ship nationwide. I like grew up. I st- my mom from online so you can order yeah my yeah. mom still sends care packages she literally still sends me a like 9 by 13 aluminum pan of like gooey butter cake as yeah. to work as though <laughs> she'll send Halloween candy to all because you don't have enough sugar to work but I became obsessed with this like we the world needs more care packages so we launched our e-com site a while ago and so we ship and that's a good that's a really that's a strong channel for us but Still to this day, it's like coming in, seeing us, and saying hi. We teach baking classes, which has also been cool a cool way to connect as well and meaningful. We make wedding cakes. We have all these other – they're not side hustles. They started out as side hustles because they were just passion projects um, that are really proving to be significant to our business. But it's still like come, come and see us or send some of us to someone you love somewhere. 
It's been written about a lot lately. You you got an investment from yeah. Stephen Ross, who uh, RSE, his firm, yeah. who owns a dolphin, Miami Dolphins, big part of Hudson Yards going on in New York, yeah. a chunk of Momofuku. Did he approach you? Did you approach his firm? How did that work? And what, what do they see? Obviously, guys, venture capitalists and stuff, they're not going to invest in something unless they think there's money to be made. Yeah. So what, what do the they see? <laughs> yeah. So what do they see in Milk Bars? Like, oh, where can this brand go yeah. five years from now? I met them as they were investing into Momo, and I saw a lot of that process go down. I think one of the greatest things that I learned was that you don't have to learn every le- lesson yourself. You should like keep your eyes open, your eyes peel, your ears open, because you can learn so much from other people's experiences. And watching Dave go through the process of raising um, was helpful to for me to understand what was important to me. Nine years of milk bar growth, we were profitable. We were, we are profitable. We, I, we would, I would have still continued to build the business, but I realized that I was building a business around incredible talent, creating these opportunities for people but that I could only grow in certain spurts because I was just using what I had, yeah. what I had made the year before. And the bootstrapping is a beautiful pursuit, but at some point, the world's gonna st- the world started changing a lot faster yeah. than we. You needed to you need to take a leap, not just a yeah. step. Yeah, and I needed to take that risk. Like I, I became too pr- I became too protective of of it. And Milk Bar is like a wild horse. It's not meant to be like you know like tied up. And so I knew I wanted to take on an investment, but what was really important to me was, was this concept that Richard Melman actually gave in, in his James Beard, like lifetime achievement speech two or three years ago that, um, still stuck with me to this day. And it was, you can't do a bad deal with good people and you can't do a good deal with bad people. And I knew I wanted to do a good deal with good people. And I knew that milk bar is, is so easy to wrap your head around from a bakery standpoint, but it is so different in what, in all of these other things that it brings to our customers and just to the, our outlook on the world that I needed someone that was going to be a visionary that had, that had the money, but that was also going to be like the patient visionary with me that wanted to like see me and the team succeed because they got it. But what is, but what is to like shake things up? Hudson Yards is like, they're putting $14 million into like this beautiful basket art installation in the front. It doesn't need to be there. They don't need to spend the money to do it, but it's cool and it's for the people and they want to like shake things up a little bit while, while growing this incredible development. And I, I, I like their approach to that. I like that they're not afraid to take risks. They push me to take risks, which I know I need. But they also believe in me and they get it. And they like that Milk Bar is like weird and quirky and human. And they but how do you, how do you how, obsessed with cereal milk. Yeah, like, but how do you retain that quirkiness and yet make that leap to what can be a bigger brand with more reach? And, yeah. what, and what does that mean? That's like the million or billion yeah. dollar question. But like right? to you, what is success five years to from me, now? To me, success five years from now is is feeding more people and making more meaningful connections with people through our food. And I don't think that that's just through opening a bunch of stores because at some point that loses like what's special about that. I think it's being more thoughtful in, in the new stores that we build and making them feel more like a place that you want to like come and do cartwheels and high kicks and make friendship bracelets and celebrate the spirit that we believe in. 
But I think it's also like meeting people at home. I grew up in the suburbs of Virginia. Like the grocery store was my place to create and innovate. It was my place to get cereal, but it was like my only outlet. I knew I was interested in food, but I, I, I didn't, I couldn't afford fancy ingredients and this and that. And so I want to make a bigger impact in, in people's lives, uh, whether they're going out to crush it in life as young professionals or going to grow their own businesses. But I also want to make an impact on people's lives when they're like six years old and seven years old, when they're first learning how to bake with their mom or their grandma or their dad or their brother. Um, and it's a tall order, but I, I believe in it. I was heavily influenced growing up by role models and seeing that it could be done and the quirk of someone doing zigging when everyone else is zagging and, and what, I mean, does that mean having a more 360 brand that you can do TV and books and stores and all that Yeah, and be a person that yeah. People can turn to. But to do it in like a thoughtful human, true to who I am and true to Milk Bar is way. Not in a way that's like, great, we're going to have a bunch of like donut shops or coffee shops or cupcake shops all over the U.S. Or we're going to have whatever, a line of X or Y or Z at this big box place. It's ways that are like thoughtful and surprising and that like that that ignites something in you and that make you want to be a little bit more clever and curious and make something with your hands and not with your thumbs is like my <laughs> tagline that my team is like we get it mom yeah. stop <laughs> saying it but to to not forget like who we are and where we came from and what's really like special and should be protected in life and also just because having like being a little silly and goofy and eating a cookie for lunch is like makes you feel like in control of a day or a world that is depending on like your day can be like scary or rainy or gloomy. Um, and it doesn't need to be, um, we look forward to that. See where milk bar goes in the years ahead. Are you ready for lightning round now? (laughs) I'm so ready for lightning rounds. All right, here we go. Ready? You have either or question. Okay. I'm going to, I'm just like, I'm I'm not going to make eye contact with you. I'm just going to put my head down. So you get like the, you got to pick one. Okay. Nomad or 11 Madison park. (laughs) That's so evil. Nomad. That was my gut reaction. You can eat there more times regularly. Yeah. Yeah. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner too. Um, chocolate cake with vanilla frosting or white cake with chocolate frosting? Oh, uh, chocolate cake with vanilla frosting. Sprinkles on top or anything or just nice and easy, uh, nice and clean? Yeah. I'll, honestly, I'll take it any way it comes. Cake and frosting. <laughs> I don't discriminate most days. Uh, big Little Lies or Stranger Things? Ooh. I'm, I'm actually a scaredy cat. And I haven't seen Stranger Things because I think it's going to give me nightmares. <laughs> I think it would speak more to my personality. But Big Little Lies because it's all about girl power. Plain or peanut M&Ms? Peanut M&Ms. Do you bite down on them or do you kind of suck on uh, them a little bit? I bite down on them and, right I, and I get them for every airplane ride. And so does <laughs> Will, my husband. So it's a problem. We get like the king size pack and it's not a good thing. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing and a terrible thing. Talent or hard work? Ooh, hard work. I think hard work breeds talent. Green juice or like beet juice? Green juice. I hate beets. What's your optimal sort of balance of vegetable to, to uh, fruit? When I'm being really good, I have green. I plug, I hold my nose and like down all the greens, green juice. But on a tricky day, I'm like, give me some fruit in my greens. Make the medicine go down quicker. Wedding or honeymoon? Ooh. What, uh, 
That's a hard you one. Got to pick one. Oh, wedding. We got we turned our wedding into a summer camp, and it was like the best three days of our entire life. That's the honeymoon awesome. was great. A latte or cold brew? Latte. I like milk. Milk. milk <laughs> of course, milk. milk. People, milk. <laughs> uh, bosom or pork bun? Bosom. The pork bun makes me feel like I'm um, what I imagine working at McDonald's is. Where like I love McDonald's French fries, but maybe when you work at McDonald's for too long, those delicious little crispy fried sticks yeah. are like you shudder at them. Bosom. Do you, are you the type that does the oyster in the little psalm wrap or no? Mm, depends on my mood. The the por- the pulled pork shoulder, it's just so delicious. Yeah. I also like don't even need to wrap it in anything. I just eat it with my fingers. I had one time I was at Psalm Bar for a friend's birthday and we got the Bosom. I literally had to excuse myself from the table at some point. I just had like the meat sweats and I just like, <laughs> I was, just, I couldn't stop eating. I was like, I got to go stand outside. It was like November. I'm like, I just need to stand here for a little while so like, and like cool down. Uh, LA or New York? New York. Ooh, Ohio or Virginia? Ohio. Really? Yeah. Even it's like, home. Like my, 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 like I was born in Ohio. My family's all from Ohio. I grew up in Virginia and it was lovely, but like my heart will always be in the Midwest. Ho-ho or ding-dong? Ooh, zebra cake. Which one's a zebra cake? <laughs> it's, it is inevitably the white cake with, it's white cake with white frosting and a little chocolate Ooh, drizzle. Okay. I'm more oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the vanilla frost. Vanilla frosting is like, whatever comes with vanilla frosting is... The thing. Interesting. Jammy ramen egg or bacon egg and cheese? Bacon egg and cheese. Do you do hot sauce or ketchup? Ketchup because I'm from the <laughs> <West. laughs> All right. Last question. Butter or olive oil? Butter. Yes. Christina Tosi, thanks so much. <laughs> thanks for having me. Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and produced and edited by Emma Wartzman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Gradies with additional music by Nathaniel Wartzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.